I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. In 2020, Asian American and Pacific Islanders in the United States were faced with a barrage of hate crimes. From getting punched while walking to the store to spat at by strangers passing, fear is rippling through the AAPI community, rightfully so. While his death was not targeted because of his heritage, the loss of Matthew Choi was huge in Portland. Everyone from his Korean family and friends to the local foodies that loved his kimchi were hurt and scared by the senseless taking of his life. In today's episode, I'll be discussing the numbers surrounding AAPI hate crimes, share some local examples, and talk about the shocking murder of entrepreneur Matthew Choi. On Tuesday, March 16th, a cowardly racist in Georgia went to three different spas and killed eight people, six of which were Asian women. Because nothing says back to normal in America quite like a mass shooting. These are the names of those that were killed. Delena Ashley Yown, 33, who was there with her husband to get massages, but she was in a different room than him. Her husband, Mario Gonzalez, saying the shooter took the most valuable thing I had in my life. Paul Andre Michaels was 54. Xiaoji Tan, 49. Dao Yu Fing, 44. Elsius R. Hernandez Ortiz, 30, was also shot but survived. An hour later, these four women were shot at another spa 30 miles away. Three were shot in the head, one in the chest. Soon Chung Park, 74. Hoin Jung Grant, 51, a single mother whose son's GoFundMe has now raised over $2 million. The money will be used to help them pay rent and bills as they are now without any relatives that live in America. Suncha Kim, 69. Yang A. Yu, 63. The killer, when captured, admitted to the shooting but blamed it on his sex addiction. I'm not going to spend the episode going into detail about how American culture has fetishized Asian and Pacific Islander women. I'm not a scholar on such things. But an example of such fetishization that has always stayed with me was when Gwen Stefani had her debut album and for a few years she toured and presented her background singers, the Hirojuku Girls. They were basically decorated like accessories, and even as a non-woke white girl all those years ago, I was like, hmm, this seems gross. Do you remember that? I do remember it, and I recently read a BuzzFeed article about it, and it started a trend. Other people wanted to do that as well. They were literally her accessories. They were. I remember people would kind of ask her about it. She's like, no, these are my girls, and we tour and do it, and we're always together, Mm. and it was like... But we don't know them. It wasn't like you were presenting them as your friends. It's like a thin line of art, right? Art comes to life, but it was just inappropriate. Yeah. And it's one thing to say because I know she said, oh, we spent a lot of time in Japan and I was so inspired by the colors and the people and the fashion and everything. And it's like, yes, you can be inspired by that. doesn't mean you can take it. But it doesn't mean you just then go and look at them, my little. But she wasn't canceled over it and everyone kind of glosses over it. And now we look back going, wow, that was really wrong. Right. I think about that sometimes now with how aware everyone is. You know, we were just talking about There is such a level of sensitivity, which is good because it's calling things out that they should be. Um, But, yeah, what is that line? Or sometimes what are the rules? And sometimes sometimes I think now I kind of look around and go, I wonder what's happening now that in 10 years we're going to go, oh, my God, I can't believe Mm -hmm. that was on television or that that movie got made or 
yeah. things like that where I wonder, what, I wonder what the next thing will be. Our culture is evolving, and I think it's always going to be some level of that. Yeah. Even though the police are being typical police and saying the shooter was at the end of his rope and that he had had a really bad day, and they're not saying this was a hate crime, there is good news. Even if the police can't figure out how hate crimes against race works, there is a law in Georgia that makes crimes based on sex a hate crime. So even with terrible police work, the prosecution should be able to up the charges based on that. But even that's hard to celebrate because making this crime sex-based takes away the fact that these women were targeted because of their race. And until that's acknowledged, there won't really be justice. In the coverage of these senseless murders, you've probably heard the startling statistics about hate crimes towards Asian and Pacific Islander people. In a report by Stop AAPI Hate, they found there were nearly 4,000 incidents reported to the organization. The organization takes reports regarding discrimination, harassment, or other hate crimes towards Asian American Pacific Islander, or AAPI, persons. Those numbers were just for one year, but the group knows the real number is much higher because not every incident gets reported. This will come as no surprise to learn that 68% of the incidents reported were towards women, 42% of incidents being targeted at Chinese people thanks to dill holes with microphones and TV access, saying things like China virus and Kung flu. One of those dill holes was on display the other day during a committee hearing where Representative Roy from Texas was there to work towards making a plan for how to help Asian communities that are facing safety and health crises safe. His plan for helping the AAPI community was by saying he didn't support China or communism. How can the racist twat that is part of the problem also be the one that gets to talk about how to make a plan to keep things better? <sighs> it's America. That's my next line was, America sucks, dude. <laughs> That's right. AAPI women are 2.3 times more likely to experience discrimination or racism, and most incidents, 34%, happened at work, 25% of them happening on the street or in public. All 50 states had reported incidents, but California topped the list. Don't get too smug, Pacific Northwest. Washington was third, and Oregon was 16th. While there has always been discrimination towards AAPI persons, in a previous episode, Tough Alaska Chick and Deep Creek, we've talked about the Chinese massacre, the discriminatory laws Oregon had towards people coming to America from Asian countries. It was COVID-19 that really took things over the edge in the last year. On the same day of the killings in Atlanta, a Portland male, I'm in no mood to call him a man, Daniel Hutchins, was at his release hearing. This hearing was in regards to an incident on December 15th of last year, during which he approached an Asian-American man that was waiting for the train and asked him if he was Chinese. As the man, whose name has not been released, was being asked about his ethnic background, he started to take off his headphones so he could hear the question. But before he could get them off, he was punched in the face by Daniel. Daniel was arrested and is facing two counts of second-degree bias crime and one count of harassment. On Sunday, February 28th of 2020, a 21-year-old student of Willamette University was at the corner of Capitol and Chemeketa in downtown Salem, Oregon, walking to the Safeway. Suddenly, she was approached by two white men. One was of bigger build, five foot six, with long blonde hair and facial hair. The other, a thin white male at 5'11", with brown hair. They called her a racial slur before they pushed her down to the ground and began kicking her, all while still calling her names. 
She survived the attack, but the perpetrators have yet to be apprehended. If you know anything about this attack in Salem from February, you are asked to contact authorities. These attacks don't have to be physical. It starts with the little things, like how the Trophy Club Grill and Bar in Medford, Oregon, has a marquee for their establishment that reads, China Virus Hours. It's something as small as that, dismissible even by people that aren't Asian as harmless, that makes room for the hate speech, which makes it okay to spit on people, which gives permission to a-holes to kick and punch people, which then leads to shootings like the one we saw in Atlanta. Last year, Portland lost a beloved entrepreneur. While the victim wasn't targeted specifically for being Asian, it was a significant loss to the Asian community and Portland at large. 33-year-old Matthew Choi lived in an apartment on Southeast 12th in Portland's Buckman neighborhood with his girlfriend, Jenny Kwan. Before Matthew's life was needlessly taken, he was known around town for one thing, kimchi. The Korean side dish of salted and fermented vegetables, it is super healthy as it is a living food and it's full of good bacteria and probiotics and veggies. In 2012, the buzz around town was about Matthew and his mother, Chong Choi, bringing the Korean dish to the forefront of Portland's foodie culture. Having immigrated from Seoul, South Korea in 1979, Chong Choi had brought with her the kimchi recipe she had learned from her grandmother and mother. She and her husband, Pom Choi, then owned and operated Alpine Cleaners in Gresham for 25 years. For those that are East County locals, Alpine Cleaners has since closed, but was located in the strip mall across the street from Fred Meyers at Powell, next to the Olive Garden, and that ski store... After graduating with a business and sports marketing degree in 2011 from the University of Oregon, Matthew and his mom decided to take her traditional Korean kimchi recipe to the masses with the Portland twist of making it vegan. So they took commercial food production classes at OSU's Food Innovation Center before setting up a commercial kitchen at home right here in Gresham. Matthew didn't leave the work to his mom, though. He was working to help with packaging, distribution, marketing, and social media. In the beginning, the duo would work at farmer's markets in the area, but they weren't content just standing in their booth. They were constantly giving out samples. Not only did they want people to try their delicious recipe, they wanted people to try something new. And if people were familiar with kimchi, it was noticeable that their small batches with fresh veggies were so much better than mass-produced kimchi at the store. As Matthew is quoted as saying once, the toothpick is mightier than the sword. What made Choi's kimchi stand out was three things. Kimchi wasn't really known or eaten in Portland yet, and the hipsters loved new things, especially healthy and vegan things. The timing was perfect for the foodie movement of the Portland area. And Matthew and his mom worked to create a handmade kimchi from a traditional recipe. Together, they would source local ingredients, chop up the veggies by hand, marinate them for hours before seasoning and fermenting it. They would then let it sit for a few days before jarring, labeling, and dating every bottle by hand. It didn't take long for word to spread. Their sales led to getting picked up by New Seasons, Whole Foods, and other stores. It's now available in over 100 stores and online. In 2020, the mother-son duo were running a rapidly growing and successful company. Matthew and his mom had literally brought kimchi to Portland, and he was now a cherished and important member of the food community. He became a member of the Pacific Northwest Sauce Makers Group, the Northwest Small Business Group, and the Farmer's Market Board. 
He was recognized as being a large part of bringing Korean food to the forefront in Portland. He was a successful child of Korean immigrants who taught one of the whitest cities in America to eat one of the most misunderstood and scary foods. On October 25, 2020, Matthew and Jenny had some friends over to celebrate Matthew's birthday. The party, as this was during quarantine, ended. The guests went home. Jenny and Matthew went to bed. They lived in a studio apartment, and be it because they were just tired from partying or maybe it was more comfortable for them, Jenny was sleeping on the bed and Matthew was on a sofa next to her. It was just before 2 a.m. when Jenny was startled awake hearing the front door softly open and close. As she did what we all do in those situations, wait, listen, hold your breath, hope for the best, what happened next was what everyone dreads in those dark, silent moments of the night. She saw a figure dart down their dark hallway into the bathroom. Jenny woke Matthew and asked him to check the apartment. Matthew did, and upon arriving to the bathroom, the innocuous act of securing his house so his girlfriend could go back to sleep took a turn to the unimaginable, when in the bathroom he encountered 30-year-old Alan Coe, an intruder and burglar that was ready to attack. Jenny heard Matthew yell, What the fuck? before she grabbed her phone and started calling 911, yelling out to the intruder and Matthew what she was doing, probably hoping that she would scare the intruder away. Once in the bathroom and realizing this was a waking nightmare, Matthew tried to get away, but before he could, he was stabbed multiple times in the chest. He collapsed in the bathroom. Alan left the bathroom and started to walk towards the bedroom where Jenny was. As Alan approached her, he lunged, knife in hand, Jenny backed as far away from him as she could. As he initiated his attempt to stab Jenny, he was stopped by a dying Matthew. In some of his final moments of life, Matthew found the strength to get out of the bathroom and leap onto the assailant, pulling him off of Jenny and saving her life. Matthew was then stabbed in the chest several more times before collapsing on the ground. Alan ran out the door. Jenny called for help and soon medics arrived. They did what they could at the scene before getting Matthew to the hospital. Soon after, he succumbed to his injuries. While investigating, police found a green backpack in the garbage chute room, which was next to Matthew's apartment. Inside, there were two social security cards, both of which belonged to residents of the same apartment building. While talking to the owners of those social security cards, they informed the police that both their apartments had been burglarized just 10 days earlier, both incidents having been reported at the time of occurrence. Once word spread about Matthew's death, a description of the attacker was released. A resident of the building saw the description and called the police to report that their neighbor, as in neighbor in the same building, Alan Coe, looked just like the description. Another neighbor reported to police that she had taken her two dogs out on a walk the night of the murders. It was around 1.40 a.m. when she took one of her dogs out and she noticed Alan was at the door of the apartments trying to get into the building via the buzzer. When she went into the apartment and left again with her second dog, which I'm still not fully understanding, like she wouldn't take both, like she walked them separately. So maybe maybe, they don't get maybe they're not good on leashes. When she took the second dog, Alan was still there and he grabbed the door. And we've all done that. We've either held the door or been the one not wanting to wait for a friend to let us in. But now this woman is grappling with the guilt of having allowed access to the building, which led to the murder. 
And I couldn't find anything about why he didn't just use his own fob because he did live in that building. So maybe he just didn't want to be traced or perhaps he left it in his apartment. I would assume it's the tracing, but she shouldn't feel bad because he lived there. Exactly. If you saw your neighbor trying to get in, Mm -hmm. would you hesitate to let them in? Right. And we've all done. I mean, I don't ever ask if I'm visiting a friend in a building like that and I go to leave and someone grabs the door I'm not stopping them and going and what building are you in and I try to time it so I don't have to do that (laughs) I actually do and I'm a door grabber I always have been but you know it's just something to think about I guess While most people are just learning about the staggering number of attacks on the AAPI community, the AAPI community is not surprised. And in late October, it was right before the election, tensions were high. The circumstances of Matthew's death weren't fully known, leaving the AAPI community on edge as each day passed without an arrest. If someone as loved and important to the community could be taken in their own home, how could anyone feel safe? Hi, I'm Carol. And I'm Holly. And we are the hosts of Fireside Phantoms. On our podcast, we will delight in telling you stories of the strange, twisted, dark, and foreboding. Creepy, crawly things slinking up your leg. Ghostly hands reaching out from beyond the grave. And we will ask hard-hitting questions like, Can Slender Man fit into my skinny jeans? Who is Wrinkles the Clown? And how can he make your child's next birthday party special? Why shouldn't we invite the black-eyed kids in? What really is going on at your creepy neighbor's house? And is it okay to peek inside? And many, many more. So join us and our forest friends as we gather around a warm and crackling campfire. This is Fireside Phantoms. Do you know how he got into people's apartments? Were they unlocked the doors unlocked so my understanding is that because of the party and they had just let their guests out that they hadn't locked their door i see i didn't see anything that specifically said that but there were several things that um the police had said if you live in an apartment building make sure it's secure secure your front door secure your personal door so i'm thinking he or maybe he watched people to know when they were coming and going and then could go mess with the door yeah, I just wasn't sure if he had tools to unlock the door and get in or my if he understanding was targeting is, yeah, unlocked doors. Yeah, that's my understanding is the latter. Six days later, it was Halloween. It was early in the morning in Milwaukee, which is just south of Portland, when Alan spotted an idling car in a driveway. Side note, do not do this, you guys. If you have keyless start and all of that, that's fine. But for us average folks, even if it's cold and icy, Don't turn on your car to warm it up and leave it unattended. Cars get stolen like this all the time. So Alan saw the car and took it, but the car wasn't his goal. He had stolen it with hopes of getting caught by police, which is exactly what happened. When he was pulled over, he reached for a metal object in his pocket. It was a piece of steel that had been cut into the shape of a heart. Shockingly, with Alan being a black man reaching for something, he was merely taken into custody and not shot. But even that hadn't been his goal. Why a metal heart? Well, he had hoped and assumed that if he reached for something metal in his pocket, he would get what he really wanted, which was killed by the police. After being arrested and taken into custody, police interviewed Alan Coe. 
He went into details of his family history, that his mom lived in North Carolina, that he was originally from Maryland but came out west for the marijuana movement, which I'm assuming is meaning that it's legal out here because I don't really know of a movement. He also spoke about personal struggles with mental health issues, including but not limited to depression. He had hoped the police would have killed him in what he called a justifiable shooting because he was unable to do it himself. He had contemplated and even come up with plans for dying by suicide, such as jumping off the apartment building, but he couldn't follow through. So death by cop was his next best option. That was Halloween. It wasn't until November 18th that Allen was arrested for the murder of Matthew Choi. Police finally pieced together that Allen had lived there, and when they asked about surveillance video from the building showing him wearing the green backpack, he admitted to having it. When asked about his whereabouts the night of the murder, he said he was at work at Intel until he got home about 1. Around 1.45, he happened to have taken trash to the room right next to the apartment Jenny and Matthew were in. He did hear a woman scream, and he later saw that police were around, but that was it. Again, except there was video evidence and fob evidence, and they found out later he was unemployed. Speaking of evidence, luckily there was someone smart enough on the medical team to think to cover Matthew's hands after he had passed away. That allowed forensics to take DNA samples. Being that he had been in a struggle, the assailant's DNA would have been transferred, which it was, and it was Allen's. How did they know that so quickly? When police first interviewed Allen, he spit on the ground. After they talked to him, they collected it. A point for the investigators. Allen matched Jenny's description of the attacker as well. With all the evidence publicly available, I would be shocked if Allen Coe didn't take a plea deal, although he did plead not guilty at his first hearing. So there's kind of no telling where this will go. With the charges combined, not counting the stolen vehicle, Coe is facing charges of first-degree murder, first-degree attempted murder, unlawful use of a weapon, first-degree burglary, and identity theft. While this wasn't a case based in anti-Asian motives, it still caused a ripple effect through the community. Fear was already high, but this crime could inspire someone to take their hatred from online to the streets, from jokes to reality, from using hate speech to punching someone, or to even murdering. So, what can be done? Just like last summer, when we were forced to face the realities the Black community faces on a daily basis, we must look at what Asian and Pacific Islanders are experiencing, and it's our job to educate ourselves and protect our neighbors. A lot of the hateful interactions I read about happened either on public transportation or at stops or waiting areas for it. And I know it's hard to not throw on headphones and block out the world, but this is about allyship and protection. So if you see an elderly or maybe a single AAPI person on the bus or train with you, maybe just keep an eye out. Be aware that they're probably on edge, fearful of the people around them being capable of ugly and damaging acts. There are several groups, one in Atlanta, that is working to provide financial support to the families affected by the attack. Not only the victims of the shooting, but others that have been affected by anti-Asian violence. Stop AAPI Hate, Hate is a Virus, the AAPI Community Fund, and AAPI Women Lead are just some of the groups you can look up and learn how to donate. And just like with Black Lives Matter, it's about support. Buying from Asian-owned businesses, eating at Asian-owned restaurants, not supporting people that appropriate. Those are just some of the things we can do.
Do we know what he was motivated by? Was he just going around and burglarizing? From what it sounds like, so there's some stuff that's public, like um, the bail hearing information was public. So I got a lot of the case info from that. Mm. But that was more pointing out why he shouldn't have bail. So it was explaining how violent it was. Right. It didn't go into that detail. So that stuff isn't really out yet. If I had to guess, you know, he's unemployed. He's struggling with mental health on some level. I didn't see anything about drugs or alcohol. So who knows on that? Um, So it sounds like it was more you're taking Social Security cards. There was some jewelry taken and some Some uh, some cash. It seems like the murder was uh, just out of being caught and Mm -hmm. startled. And I think it was late at night. And he found an open door, and maybe that's how he had done it before. Maybe he snuck in at night and Ugh, it's so hard. was I'm... sneaky and grabbed things and left, and that was part of it. But this time he got caught. I yeah. don't know. I hate to say, like, because it puts it on the victims, is we all need to make sure we lock our doors. Yeah. Because this stuff happens Even way in too much. a secure building. Yeah, you can't. Well, honestly, I'd be more scared of my neighbors than I are. I am right. strangers on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> But I think I think people get lost in that sometimes of, oh, I've got a buzz door. Yeah. So who cares about my door? But this guy lived in that building. But it's just a one one forgetful moment of locking your door could result in something like this that's totally unforeseen. Mm-hmm. So what's next for him? What's the is there a uh, court date? There's no court date yet. So if I had to guess, they're probably piecing together everything and they'll present him with an offer. Yeah. Because it's so blatant. I mean, from DNA to video evidence to fingerprint evidence to oh, yeah. description. He'll, he'll plead out, I'm sure. So I would hope so just to save the families from having to go through all of it again. Jenny, you know, so that she doesn't have to take the stand or anything oh, like that. that part about him protecting her. Oh. Yeah. And it saved her life. If he hadn't done that, she would have been stabbed. You know, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't a... Uh, it wasn't like he was walking out the door, you know, it was an attack. So and I'm glad they're charging him on that, too. You mm-hmm. know, the attempted murder of Jenny. So I'm hoping he pleads out and gets a lot of time and help he and help. help. It, yeah, exactly. So if there is an element there of the mental health issues and uh, anything else that would have contributed to this, absolutely. I hope he gets the help needed. But it's just. The, this is one of those cases where you're like, throw the book at him because yeah, it's senseless. You this, you you went into their house and killed them in the middle of the night after his birthday party. What is that? That's that's really high on the evil scale, but not in that same way of the the ongoing cruelty or the really extreme stuff. But it's such it's its own form of evil. Of I'm gonna do that thing, and I always wonder too with people that do that that break into places at night I always wonder what their perception of that was when they were a kid or as they were growing up to then become the boogeyman yeah I mean that's everyone them or not I feel like that's an everyone baseline fear is I'm gonna hear something at night I'm gonna hear a window or a door or something in your own home yeah and then or I'm gonna wake up and there's a figure right there that's kind of everyone's of course I'm scared of that it's like a normal thing to be worried about or to have cross your mind and then to become that it's kind of fascinating well it's of, almost like another layer of of sickness that you are 
you want to be that scary yeah. person? Are you doing it to be avoided and not get caught? Or do you like that element of putting the fear right. in someone? I get to be the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. It's powerful and scary and in control of the situation. And um, and then they're always going to think about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of layers to it. And um, like I said, it's just a lot of, uh, it's a lot of awareness and a lot of work and, uh, I'm sure there are people that hear this information and roll their eyes or huff or go, oh, great. We just did Black Lives Matter. You absolutely <laughs> you know? will get those comments. But I mean, here's the thing. We are uh, the majority of our listeners and ourselves were white. Mm-hmm. And until you really get into one of the minds of these people, you don't know how they live. You don't know what it's like to be an Asian woman and be catcalled and treated like you're some new level of, of you're almost like you're por- walking pornography because mm-hmm. you're Asian. Like, we don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's like that's what we're doing. We're trying to bring attention to it because mm-hmm. it is really scary. Well, and if you think you're sick of hearing about it, try living it. Yeah. I'm, there were so many stories. I mean, I could have gone into hours of just these not minor incidents, but comparatively mm-hmm. of just people sitting on the bus and somebody walks by and yells China virus and kicks them. One woman got kicked in the shins that she had to, like, get medical help for it. Because the guy just walked by and kicked her so hard on the bus. I have witnessed far, like in my personal life living in Oregon, I have witnessed far more verbal abuse towards Asian people than mm-hmm. any other race, just from my witnessing it. Right. And that's why the Pacific Northwest does have those higher numbers, because we do have higher populations mm-hmm. of all sorts of Asian folks that's and Pacific Islanders. another layer of, that's hard to swallow is like these people come to our country to escape lives where they were right Mm -hmm. they come here to have a a better future for their children and that just makes it even more sad Mm -hmm. they're just being prosecuted name called and killed for for their skin or it's terrible yeah it's really baffling and horrible and ugly and persecuted is the word i meant there there it is (laughs) we can hope that talking about it seeing this on the news now daily and seeing it online and people really getting behind it hopefully will empower people to stop it if they see it happening if it happens to them they report it more so that it's even more Mm -hmm. documentation so you can get more support that people step in if it's possible and you know if you have that friend that says china virus being funny you say no (laughs) it's called covid or corona or whatever you want to call it besides that yeah it's funny coming from people descendants of uh giving smallpox to populations right. and murdering them so yeah isn't that cute <laughs> oh i was gonna go back to um what you had said about people coming to america you don't ever hear the i'm gonna go to america for the american dream which is to Get on welfare and get on the local health care plan and to suck up all their resources. It's always because you have opportunity and I can build a business. And I'm going to build a life. Exactly. And then my children will have better. Well, like we talked about in the Chinese Massacre episode, how it was like so many of Portland businesses got started by Asian people that had come over. Mm -hmm. And so we owe a lot of gratitude to all of the Asian people that came to Portland and really created a big 
chunk of our culture. So there you have it. Um, Just stop hating everybody for being different, you guys. (laughs) Damn. I think our listeners are usually the nice, except they are. Ones. Well, we have to, we got to weed some of them out sometimes. <laughs> they weed themselves out. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> But an example of what people are talking about with the fetishization, the health and safety crises, crises, <laughs> with the known in a previous episode, tough Alaska chick and deep creek. Oh my god, deep creek. Also, you said, "Oh my god." <laughs> I quit. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 